Hey, uh, good to have you here this morning. Uh, for those of you here for the first time, we'd like to welcome you. You jumped into uh, week three of a series we've called "What Would Jesus Undo," and it's a very uh, confront. It's been a very confronting series, actually, unapologetically confronting series, um, with the exception of mushrooms. Nothing good grows in the dark. And uh, we have a God who wants the best for us. Do you know that, that, that God's best and your best are the same thing? That God wants his best for you, and his best for you is also your best for you. And we don't want to settle for anything less than God's best. We don't want to settle for anything less than, than our best based on what God wants to, to bring us to. And so he actually likes to shine the spotlight on some things. Things that we've settled with, things that are less than his best, and he likes to shine the spotlight on them so that he can actually transform them. Not so that he can shame us, not so he can ridicule us, not so we can be reminded of our shortcomings or our failures, but actually shine the light on them so that in the light they can be transformed, that we can become aware of them, that we can actually surrender them to him. Week one, two weeks ago, we, we talked about indifference and how it's very easy to slide gradually towards indifference. And Jesus got real busy confronting a particular church called Laod- a church in Laodicea. And uh, that can be a word for us. The word that he spoke to them can be a word for us if we've actually allowed ourselves to become Indifferent in one or more areas of following Jesus. Last week, we talked about hypocrisy. This word hypocrite is, comes from Greek acting, from, from ancient Greek acting, where, where some actors would actually play the entire, the entire course of the play uh, holding up a mask. And for too many people, that's how they live. They live behind a mask, and, and, and while we live behind a mask, we never, we're never required to show who we really are, and yet it's only when we drop the mask, it's only when we say, God, I'm going to take the risk, I'm going to allow myself to be vulnerable, that he can actually transform us. And this morning's actually kind of part two of last week's message. Now, if you missed any of the messages, you can uh, catch them on our, our, our uh, podcast, either through our app or uh, Apple Podcasts or most of the uh, major uh, podcatchers around. Um, we did send out an e-update this week, too, a little bit of bonus content uh, in case you missed it. Um, on the Bible app, so it's the Bible app, if you go into your app store or your Google Play store and you look for the Bible app, or if you already have it, uh, there's actually a five-day reading plan for this series, What Would Jesus Undo? And I would encourage you, maybe this week, Monday through Friday, just jump in each of the days of this week and uh, just read those Bible plans um, for the What Would Jesus Undo? And just allow God to drill a little bit deeper for you and with you. In the lead-up to what became World War II, in the years leading up to it, uh, the leader of uh, Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler, uh, was courting for years uh, the leader of fascist Italy, Benito Mussolini. And uh, throughout the years leading up to what would become World War II, they would visit each other's countries and kind of you know, put on a show and, and, and get to know each other and, and, and build an alliance, which ultimately caused them to be the two main protagonists for World War II. One of those visits was in May 1938, where Adolf Hitler actually visited Rome. And uh, 
Mussolini wanted to put on a big show for Adolf Hitler, wanted to impress him, wanted to show him how, how great Italy was and how they should become aligned. And so they built new buildings in the lead up to Hitler's visit. They, they, they built a new road and called it Via Adolf Hitler. Uh, it's no longer called that, um, thankfully. And, uh, but, but basically, uh, prior to this visit in May 1938, despite all the works that were going on, they, they, they ran out of time and they ran out of money to finish all of the, the, the upgrades and the remodeling uh, around Rome. And so, so Mussolini ordered instead the various buildings that hadn't actually been updated yet. He ordered, he ordered them to have wooden uh, structures erected in the front of those buildings and have those wooden structures painted like they would have wanted those buildings to look like had they actually got to them. So there's Mussolini and there's Adolf Hitler driving down one of the main roads, main vias in Rome. And uh, Mussolini somehow thinks that Adolf Hitler is not going to notice that several of the buildings are actually covered with a wooden panel that's just painted to look like an upgraded building. Now, the Italians have a, a word or a phrase to describe this particular cultural phenom. They call it la bella figura. And uh, literally that translates a good presentation. That, 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 that culturally, there's this norm that you actually have to put up a facade in order to show yourself as being better than you actually are. We use the term facade. And we think, well, you know, you look, listen to a story like that and you think, Mussolini, really? Who, who were you kidding? And yet some people actually choose to live this way. Some people actually choose to erect a facade and go through life with that facade for fear of people finding out who they actually are. Put a facade in front so that they won't actually have to allow people in, won't actually have to confront some things, won't actually let God shine a light on a particular area or areas of their life. And uh, there's reasons for that for some of us. If that's you, if you've done that or you do that, th there may be reasons for that. And they may actually be valid reasons. You may have tried it before. You may have tried to let your guard down, tried to, to let the facade down, and, and, you, and, and, that, and someone took advantage of that. Maybe spoke some words into you that, that had you left that facade up, those words would never have penetrated. You took the risk and unfortunately those words got through. Maybe you even said to God, God, I'm going to let you tear this facade down and I'm going to let you work on this stuff. And yet it seemed to you that God either didn't come through or he took his jolly sweet time or, or the outcome that he decided was best for you wasn't the one that you were hoping for in the first place. And so you've decided, you know what, I'm going to put that facade back up and I'm going to live safely behind it and I'm going to pretend to the world that everything's all right. If you've got our, bi our uh, Elevate app, you tap on the Bible tile, it's going to take you to a recording of a history from Luke. Luke was a doctor, quiet in the back, quiet in the back, quiet in the back, apologies to podcast, Gavin, quiet in the back, thank you. If I'm distracted, everyone's distracted. 
You'll tap the Bible tile, and it's going to take you to an account of Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor, and Luke actually wrote this book, which is called the Book of Luke. He actually wrote it after Jesus had died and been resurrected. Luke actually was hearing this stuff and hearing these stories, and he thought, I'm going to check out the veracity of these stories, plus I want to record them so history will have them. And so he went around getting eyewitness accounts of people who'd seen and heard and spent time with Jesus and been exposed to his teachings. And, and this is actually a story that, that, that Luke recorded that Jesus had taught. Um, and actually came straight after another story. But to give you the context of the story that I want to focus on this morning, Jesus taught this story to a very specific audience. Some of Jesus' stories were just like the crowd gathered and Jesus taught them. Some of them, they were like, okay, there was this, uh, his disciples, the 12 merry men, and he taught them. In this case, the audience was very, very specific. The, the audience that he taught this, this story to were, were what we might call perfect people, or at least people who thought they were perfect and wanted the world to think they were perfect. That's who Jesus angled this story towards. Plus, like any good story, well, the, the story had two audiences. And like any good story, there was a hero and there was a villain. Like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, the hero and the villain. Like the Terminator and the newest Terminator, the hero and the villain. Like Chuck Norris and whoever Chuck Norris decides he wants to pick on is a villain. When Chuck Norris does push-ups, he doesn't push up. He pushes the earth down. All right. I could, no, seriously, I could go all day with Chuck Norris jokes. Really? Request? Okay. So in this story, there's a hero and a villain. The, the, the two characters that Jesus actually chooses to focus this story around, one is a Pharisee. Now, Pharisee isn't a, language, a word we use these days, but in that time, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were like the, like the religious leaders, and, and they were people that, 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 the, the, that the people in the area actually looked up to, looked up to for leadership and for guidance, and really held them in very, very, very high esteem. The other person, the other character that Jesus chose to use in this story was a a tax collector. Now, we don't have tax collectors these days, certainly not in the way they did back then. Back then, well, put it this way, tax collectors were so bad that when you read about them in the Bible, they actually have their own category of baddies. You read, you'll see it again, time and again in the Bible, Records of two categories of baddies, sinners and tax collectors. They were so bad, they were, they were so bad, they actually got their own category of bad. So, so tax collectors were baddie baddies. And uh, the reason they were so bad, the reason they were so looked down on is that in Jerusalem, in the Jewish part of, of the known world at the time, the Romans had invaded the Romans had, had subsumed Jerusalem and made them subject to the Roman Empire. And, and tax collectors would actually, would actually personally collect tax revenue from the citizens of uh, the Jewish part of the world. The problem is, not only were the tax collectors working for the occupiers, the tax collectors would also be in the habit of uh, taking a little bit extra, charging a little bit extra and skimming that and putting it to the side. They, so they would take the tax that Rome wanted and send that to Rome, but they'd take a bit extra, don't tell Rome about it, and would actually put that into their own little personal wealth. So you can be, you know, 
It doesn't take much to figure out why people didn't actually like tax collectors. So here's the, the people in this story that Jesus chooses to tell. The Pharisee, the one that everyone looks up to, and the tax collector, the one that everyone looks down on. And here's how Luke records the story. Jesus told his next story. So he's just finishing telling a story about a persistent widow. Encourage you to read it. Great life lessons there. And then he goes on to this. And, 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 and Luke records, again, the audience. Told his next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance, perfect people, and looked down their noses at the common people. And this is the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax man. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man, I fast twice a week and tithe on all my income. This is the guy that should be the hero of the story. This is the guy that everyone would have thought when Jesus said Pharisee, he was going to really give that guy some mad, mad props. And yet, as you'll see, that maybe isn't how this thing translated. But what had happened is the, the Pharisee had stopped seeing his life as a gift from God and started seeing himself as a gift to God. And we can get that way real easy. We give the first 10%. We give the tithe and we say to God, we say to God you get that? You'd better be happy. I just gave. Instead of saying, man, I am so grateful that God is the source of my everything and that he's actually provided me with something that I can actually even give. Well, we serve, we turn up, we, we join an Elevate team and we serve and we do this and it's, you know, we do two weeks in kids and two weeks out and we, we, maybe we're here setting up for the host team or maybe we're here for the music run through and initially it's all fun and it's all great and we think, man, wow, I can't believe that of all the people on this planet, God chose me to do this. I get to serve the King of Heaven. That's so great. That's so great. And yet we can so easily drift to where we turn up and we say, God, you better be watching, buddy. I'm here again. You notice it? I better be getting something for this God. And pride can take over just like it did for this Pharisee. And it rarely happens in an instant. It's almost always a gradual, subtle, imperceptible process. Here's some traits of pride-fueled people. Number one, self-sufficiency. You know you've got what it takes. You know you don't need anybody, and you're starting to think you don't even need God. On Monday, you wear the T-shirt, look at what I've done, instead of the T-shirt, look at what God's done. Another trait of pride-fueled people is self-importance. On Tuesday, you wear the T-shirt, look at how good I am, instead of look at how good God is. The problem is when we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. And then we start doing what the Pharisee did, self-exaltation. You actually give an inordinate amount of your time and energy towards impressing people. You have to have the latest phone. 
and make sure everyone knows about it. You don't sell your old phone until you've taken a photo of your new phone and put that on social media and then you can sell your old. <laughs> and no, I'm not talking from personal experience. <laughs> you have to drive an expensive car, which I'm also not talking from personal experience because I don't even own a car. You have to send your kids to the best school. You have to wear the designer label clothes. And you have to live in an expensive home in a nice neighborhood. And here's the thing. None of those things are necessarily bad or wrong unless they're fueled with the wrong fuel. Unless your fuel, unless your motive, unless your goal is about impressing people. That's bad fuel. That's pride. And that's a problem. In February 2017, so about 18 months ago, Louis and I bought a new old house. This is it, the street view of our new old house. Jordan has since painted that uh, gate to match the rest of the fence. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so at the time that we were, we were uh, you know, we put the offer in and the offer had been accepted. And apologies, yes, that's an NBN box in the front if you don't have NBN in your house. Uh, yet it sucks to be you. And... Um, so we were in the final process of buying this house, and one of my friends at the time said, oh, fantastic, Let, you know, sh show me the house. Now, when th this is the digital age, when they say show me the house, they don't actually mean take me to the house. They mean send me the link from the domain app. So I sent them the link from the domain app, and uh, if you've you know, been on domain or real estate uh, uh, app, you know that the, kind of the deal is simply that you, you're going to get a, a carousel of photos. And uh, probably the, the, the starting photo is the street view like this, and then you just swipe and you start to see the kitchen and the, the lounge room and this and that. Now, I can tell you this house was built in 1956, and uh, when we had the uh, building inspection done, pre-purchase building inspection, the bottom line from the inspector, he wrote, uh, well-constructed, poorly maintained. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. As long as the thing's not going to fall down, we can fix the other stuff. But let me just say, inside this house, it's pretty modest. So I send the link from uh, the domain app to my friend, and uh, about 20 minutes later, I got their response, and they said, well, it's got good curb appeal. Now, I think they were just trying to say, oh, I see that the inside needs a little bit of work, but at least, you know. But I responded to them mixed encouragement, it's got good curb appeal, by saying, what do I care? I'm not going to be living on the curb. <laughs> I, right? We, we're not buying this house so that we can sit on the curb with a coffee and look at it from the street and think, wow, wow, living the dream. I really don't care actually very much about the curb appeal. In fact, and I've given this tip before, make the house look terrible from the front because it sends a message to the burglars that there's probably nothing in there worth stealing. <laughs> that their house is better than yours. <laughs> curb appeal is a problem. Curb appeal is a mistake. But I said, I'm not going to be living on the curb. We're going to be living on the inside. So I don't really care anything about curb appeal. But here's the thing. Proud people.
people who have slipped into the mistake of living to impress and please other people are more interested in the curb appeal of their lives than they are in actually saying, God, how about we work on the inside? Because I want to live from the inside out. Let's do a work on the inside. Let the renovations begin. Anyway, that person is no longer my friend. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> well, you know, easy come, easy go, right? <laughs> not because of that. Well, not, not, not entirely because of that. And then when pride takes over our lives, we can actually slip into this big problem, this modern problem. Maybe it's not a modern problem because the Pharisee was doing it of comparison and judgment. Comparison and judgment is fueled by two things in my observation. It's, it's fueled by pride, but it's also fueled by insecurity. And in fact, I often think that pride is the secondary fuel and insecurity is actually more often not the primary fuel. That our insecurity fuels pride and then that pride fuels comparison and judgment so we actually <laughs> this is difficult to say because it, it kind of it kind of doesn't make sense <laughs> if you're scared of letting the facade down the most important thing you can do for your growth is to let the facade down There's no shortcut. There's no hack. There's no sidestep. If, if you actually have found yourself erecting a facade, trying to impress other people, being fueled by pride, but really ultimately probably being fueled by insecurity, then actually the, the, the remedy is to actually let the facade down. You're only going to know if God wants to shine the light on to let the restorations begin by actually dropping the facade. It's a catch-22. Well, Jesus went on with his story. Meanwhile, the tax man, the tax man that the Pharisee had just thrown shade on, slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. That was his response. He's meant to be the villain. The Pharisee was meant to be the hero. At least that's what the culture would have expected. And Jesus flipped the script. This tax man was the archetype of this most despised person in the society at the time. And there was actually a way, the law of the day provided a way, provided an avenue for that tax man to actually make himself right with the people. All he needed to do was to pay back everything that he'd ever collected from the people plus 20%. And the tax man realized that that was literally impossible. He realized that his life had been backed. He'd, he'd painted himself into a corner that he, 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 it was impossible for him to get out. And he realized that the only way he was going to get out of this is to empty himself and allow God 
to fill him and rescue him and restore him. He understood that in his case, if God didn't intervene, he was done. And Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, not the Pharisee, not the one you thought was going to be the hero of the story, the baddie, the baddie of the baddies, went home and made right with God. See, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. (laughs) That's a classic. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you'll become more than yourself. You know, culturally, humility is associated with weakness. And yet, actually, pride is really is what's associated with weakness. And in fact, it's humility that's actually a demonstration of strength. But it's not a demonstration of your strength. It's a demonstration of your vulnerability. And it's a demonstration that you recognize that you have access to a strength, that you have access to a God who, who does want to shine the light on your life, who doesn't want you living behind a facade, who doesn't want you, even if you've painted yourself into the corner, he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to actually take you from there. And it requires, like this text man did, the willingness and the decision to live humbly and, and in some cases to actually be humble in a moment. And here's what we're going to do. Let's get the music team back up. Here's what I want us to do. And we've been just doing this the last couple of weeks. Sometimes, and I've said this each of the weeks, sometimes the response for us to something from God's word is, is it, it begins when we leave the door. It begins when we turn up to work tomorrow. It begins when we see our friends and family tonight. It, it begins in a, in, a, in a situ out there. There's other decisions. There's other things. There's other things that we can actually decide here. They're actually about transformational moments here. And uh, we've just been given this thing. You guys can start noodling, vamping, silly musos with their funny language. is uh, just giving an opportunity just to contemplate maybe what God said to you today. Contemplate maybe what God wants you to do differently from today and make that decision here in this moment. And so we just, uh, the team's put together just this little rope installation. It's very simple and uh, it doesn't have any magical powers, but we're just given an opportunity just to take a Sharpie. We've got some Sharpies over there. And just right across, the first week we, we talked about indifference, just right across a knot, Something that God wants you to let go of. Something that God wants you to humble yourself. It, it, it's not necessarily everyone. Um, but if that's you, if you've, if you've been thinking this morning, God's been speaking to you. God's Holy Spirit's been nudging you. God's been, you felt him shining that light on. Then I want to encourage you, just going to sing, just stay seated, the rest of us, but just to get up and uh, mosey on around the back of the uh, tank there. Grab a Sharpie and just ride on that rope, the thing you want to let Jesus undo this morning. And then just literally as, as a symbol of God in that moment, trusting that he's actually working there, just untie that knot and just know that Jesus does want to undo that in your life. So the rest of us, we just keep worshiping this morning.